0: This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Laracasts. Laracast is the de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels. Whether you're new to Laravel or you're hoping to level up your dev team, Laracasts was constructed entirely and exclusively for you. It's a lot like Netflix for your career. I think there's over 500 videos on there right now, covering all sorts of topics from Laravel itself to different backend tools, front-end frameworks like Vue.js and React, design patterns, how to get better at Git. There's something on there for everybody. So check it out if you have a chance at. Laracast.com. And thanks again to Laracast for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 33 of the Full Stack Radio podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry with everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. My name is Adam and your host as always, and today I'm here with David Hemphill, is that how you pronounce it? I should have asked you before.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's like hemp on
0: a hill. Perfect. So for anyone who uh, isn't familiar with you, we kind of, I think I actually first met you at Laracon in New York City, but we didn't really know who each other were at the time, I don't think. But I think we definitely bumped into each other and said hello at least. But we've kind of been chatting back and forth on Twitter and everything ever since. Um, for anyone who doesn't know you, do you mind giving kind of a brief uh, introduction into who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, um, my name's David, of course. And I have kind of two roles that I do during the day, uh, throughout the week. I'm an entrepreneur and I have some partners in a company called Rebel Ventures. And we're working on right now a big, Kind of nonprofit donation system. And kind of my second job that I work on at night is Monarchy. And that's kind of my consultancy turned into a product company. Yeah. And so I'm in both of those roles. I'm you know a founder, developer, designer, a lot of that.
0: Awesome. How did you get into development and stuff in the first place? I have a hard time kind of figuring out like where your biggest strengths are because it seems like you kind of do a bit of it all.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of what I hear a lot. I got started just, uh, I mean, I was in a lot of bands during my teen years and we just needed websites. So I just, I'm the kind of guy that wants to figure it out and not ask for any help. And so that might be, a strength or it might be a a weakness too, (laughs) but I just like to figure things out and kind of poke and prod. And so, you know, back in the day when we were, I was editing websites on a floppy disk and bringing it, bringing it into my school so I could check my work. I actually had to, my dad had a a 386 old, old computer and it didn't have the internet on it. It was like windows 3.0, didn't have a browser, but I knew enough HTML for my classes that I would go home and write it in a in a text file and save it on a floppy disk, bring it in into school and see if it worked. And if it <laughs> didn't, awesome. it, was a, it was a big bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've kind of just always taken that approach, just do it myself. And and that led me to designing and development, all, all, all of it. That's kind of what I like to do. I like to have my hands in everything.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you consider yourself more of a designer or more of a developer?
1: Uh, over the years, I think I'm more of a developer just because I kind of get... Disenchanted with design. I, I just, my idea is I want them to come out faster than I can actually like Photoshop them. And so that's kind of why I've considered myself more a developer because I'm usually designing in the browser.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So um, the thing that kind of made me want to ask you to come on the podcast was this new project that I guess uh, you just released the other day called Push Silver. Do you want to maybe give a brief kind of overview about what that's all about and what kind of your motivation was for putting it together?
1: Yeah, Push Silver is, I call it, ultra simple invoicing for humans, for busy humans. And in the earlier part of 2015, I was doing a lot of consultancy work, just tackling random projects here and there at night while doing my day job, then at Musicbed. And I just found like the biggest pain on that was getting paid for me. And so I built a little project that would allow one of my customers to come in and just pay me arbitrary amounts, um, sort of like a if you've seen Square Cash or... Venmo payments, that kind of thing. But I kind of wanted just my own deal so I could, you know, flex some muscle. And that worked great. You know, like zero people used it, except my wife used it once. But I I also had noticed that this invoicing system I was using for like the last six years was kind of stale. So I decided to add proper invoicing and that sort of thing. And just really focus on the people like me that were just kind of hacking it out at night when their wife and kids go to sleep. That kind of thing, uh I saw a lot of products in the market that were just either i didn't want to pay the monthly for it or it just had way too many features for what I needed. I just needed invoicing, you know what I mean,
0: yeah, so I mean that's a a challenge that I kind of run into a lot myself is like trying to decide whether or not to, I think every developer is like this, but every time like you go to find a tool to use for something like invoicing, or for me recently, it was like trying to find something to like run my personal like newsletter off of. You find all these different options and it's every single one of them has like some monthly cost associated with it. You know, whether it be 30 bucks, maybe up to 75 bucks or something. And even like, 15 bucks a month is enough to make me like consider building something myself. You know what I mean? So, um, for you in this situation, like what, what sort of decision-making went into that? How did you kind of decide, well, I want to build something myself versus paying for something off the shelf. Was it mostly because, uh, things didn't have what you needed? Was it because you were interested in like trying to build something for your portfolio or create something that you could sell or, you know, what kind of, what was your kind of thought process? Yeah. I I think of,
1: just always had kind of an entrepreneurial, uh, I don't know, attitude and that DIY attitude too. Even if there's like good products out there that I could pay 15 month uh, bucks a month for, I'm just like, I could build that though. And I can just use it. And then I have my own product. That was kind of one of the decisions I had to make early on when it was just, just the payment where you could pay ar- arbitrary payments. It was like, okay, I could just build this for myself as a simple form. But then I was like, or I just make it multi tenant and a bunch of my friends can use it if they want. If they don't, you know, I've learned how to do that and, and it was, kind of, you know, opportunity to learn. But it was kind of more just the DIY. I like to, to tinker with that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, for sure. Did you have like a version of this that was like public facing before you kind of uh, launched? I guess it was like, I think you were kind of talking about it as kind of like the new version of it or whatever. Um, did you have people using it before or is this kind of like the initial? Kind of push.
1: Um, this, yeah, it was kind of a soft launch. I had some friends that were using it. Uh, my wife used it once on a something, some random thing she needed to get paid for. Uh, so yeah, it kind of sat there for a year just for my my usage.
0: Cool. Um, it'd be cool to kind of talk about what went into building it and what kind of tool choices, decisions you made, and stuff like that. Do you mind kind of talking about kind of how the whole thing's put together?
1: Yeah, it's on Laravel. Servers are DigitalOcean. It's not really that that uh special it's it's kind of the it's not a majestic model it's because it's not that big it's uh, a, <laughs> but uh what kind of things would you want to know
0: yeah i mean like it's all even if it is like just kind of the same stuff that people might expect to be using on personal projects i think sometimes it's cool to to hear that to know that like people can put stuff together uh, using these tools and everything kind of works out fine and they're not doing anything wrong. So like you said, um, Laravel for um, the backend framework, did you build it as like a uh, more traditional like server-side application or is there like a heavy client-side uh, routing or any of that stuff going on?
1: Oh yeah, it's it's pretty much out of the box Laravel. There are some dynamic parts that are built in Vue, uh, Vue.js, and yeah. And that's mostly because I found that jQuery was breaking down for me, and it was a lot quicker to use Vue. Also, I wanted to learn Vue, so I just decided, hey, I'm going to incorporate it into into Pushsilver. Um, so, like the the invoicing part is built in Vue. There's a preview app that is built in Vue. So, like when the client is seeing the the invoice, that part is built in Vue. But they're all separate controllers. It's not like a a single page app. It it just kind of looks for the ID on that page and then. Kind of spins up the view instance from that.
0: Cool. You said you're running it on a DigitalOcean. Is it just a single server, or do you got anything more complicated than that setup?
1: No, it's just a single server, and even the the database right now is on that same server. And I just run crons to back the database up. Really small. I mean, it's really simple right now. You know, if it gets bigger, yeah. we'll have to do something different probably. But right now, it's working great.
0: Cool. Are you using? Uh, what are you using for the database? Just uh, MySQL or? Postgres or Yeah, just
1: MySQL. Do
0: you have any specific like reasons for choosing MySQL? Is it just kind of just that's the comfort zone sort of thing?
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely the comfort zone for me. And Laravel Forge makes it really easy to spin all of that up and not have to think too much about it. So I kinda just go with what's the least least friction on my part and that seems the most reliable, you know.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh you you put out a blog post I guess pretty recently that I was reading earlier about um what goes into choosing tools and stuff like that. And I think it's interesting to talk about like choosing something just because like you are comfortable with it and know you're going to be productive with it and kind of accepting that kind of bypassing this whole trying to decide what is the exact best technology to use for this specific problem sort of thing. I don't know. Do you have any opinions on that that you'd be willing to share? Cause it's been a topic that I've been thinking about a little bit more lately. I know I, historically I've always had a tendency to kind of like, pick the things that I'm most comfortable with, even if, you know, someone who knows way more about what I'm about to build than I do might choose something else that's, you know, technically more suited for the problem at hand. But I don't know, it's been an interesting thing for me to think about. What about you?
1: Yeah, when I guess over the past few years, I've kind of the pendulum has swung more in the area of whatever is simple and gets it done. Because I like most PHP developers in the last few years. We were learning all these new terms and patterns and that kind of thing and I really really got into that almost to the detriment of my code and productivity. You know, there it seemed like I was doing the wrong thing no matter what I did. You know, I wasn't testing at, at some point and then I started testing, but then I wasn't doing integration and you know, I wasn't separating all the tests out into unit tests, integration tests, acceptance tests. There's all these test terms that I didn't know really what it was. Basically, all I wanted to ensure was that the sign-up form worked, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? I just wanted to make sure that when someone signed up, there was something in the database. And whatever gave me that kind of peace of mind is what I went with. And so really over the past year, I've just been focused on productivity and whatever makes me that most the most productive and gives me the security to build the products that I like to build is what I'm, I'm kind of going with. And right now, that's that's Laravel. Views is really great. And then I have my own SAS framework that I use for CSS that, yeah, probably makes a lot of developers uncomfortable when they first see it.
0: It'd be cool to get into that uh, soon. I was One other thing I'd like to talk about quickly with PushSilver is, um, you know, you talked about using Vue.js for the front end. Uh, what was kind of your motivation for trying out Vue? What other frameworks have you used in the past and what makes you like Vue more than those?
1: Well, back when I worked at Musicbed, there were, it was just a big kind of a spaghetti code javascript thing there was this stuff everywhere i i mean i barely made sense of it all i mean i kind of inherited some of it and then i kind of created added to that sure and so we had a, a gulp file that was like hundreds and hundreds of lines long just did all sorts of things like it compiled coffee script compiled javascript and then it linted both with you know coffee lint and then javascript linting and just kind of like did all this stuff and really over the past couple of years i guess is just the javascript stuff has been really crazy just the tool sets that have come out it seems like every week there's something new that we need to be using for me it was like browserify and webpack i don't know i don't know i just want to make the parts of my page dynamic you know <laughs> and not not regret it a few years later hopefully yeah for sure and so vue kind of just came into in the view i guess it's been a year but it, yeah it just seemed really simple and at musicbed when we were building the new version we were considering angular and we looked at Ember, and it really seemed like Angular had the market share at the at that time. So yeah. they're kind of invested in that. Ember seemed really great and seemed stable, which was important. But it was, it was almost kind of a thing where we couldn't find developers. It was going to. It seemed like there were very many Ember developers that were actually building things and were on the market. And so, but Angular, it seemed like you could get developers to work on it pretty easy. And so I liked a lot of the Angular things. I didn't build a bunch of that on the music bed side, but when it came time. To do push silver view had already popped up and i was like whoa this thing seems really simple almost like too simple like maybe i didn't understand it totally but then you get on layercast and that makes you feel better about everything because you feel like you can just learn so much and so that that gave me a lot of confidence just to, to go forward with view and i i really like it it's really makes a lot of sense for me
0: yeah i mean i totally agree i did a bunch of work with angular i still work with angular on the odd project here and there But the way that I always like to use Angular was kind of the way that it seems like a lot of us are using Vue these days where you're not doing like a separate API and separate like client side application. You're just kind of sprinkling in like the odd dynamic component here or there sort of thing. Right. And I always found it was kind of tricky to figure out the best way to do that with angular like it seemed like there's a bunch of approaches you could take to organizing things and structuring things and not really a lot of conventions or not really a lot of strong community agreed upon ways to do things it feels like every time i jump onto a different angular project um, the build process is completely different the project is organized completely differently and then you look at something like ember I don't think Ember can even really be used the way that I would want to use it on an application. Like, maybe you can use it to, like, just sprinkle in some JavaScript here and there. But uh it seems to really want you to do, like, a full client-side and server-side separation. Like, they have their own CLI tool that scaffolds out a whole new app for you and stuff like that. So, in the market that I find, kind of feel that Vue fits in, I feel like the only competition that it had... That I ever worked with that really like fit the same niche was like Knockout years and years ago. I don't know. Did you ever do any stuff with Knockout in the past?
1: I haven't, but I've since finding Vue. I've found that there's a lot of similarities with Knockout.
0: Yeah, Vue just seems to be like better than Knockout in every way. But it's still the same sort of a uh, kind of approach where it fits in real nice if you're just building something that's meant to be a more traditional, you know, server rendered, server routed application for sure.
1: Yeah, you hinted on something there. In the middle of that he was saying like it wanted you to go single page app like ember did and i felt i feel that pressure even with like angular sort of but it feels you know i knew that because i'm a compulsive view sourcer like on laravel forge he had uh, taylor used just uh, a controller for each page and i was like oh okay there's an actual app that's making money that can just do it and it doesn't have to be a full single page app it kind of gives you some confidence knowing that you can You just want to sprinkle it in on a few pages and that's fine. And you're not going to be punished for it. And I think view kind of allows for that. And then when you're ready to to grow or or like with Pushover, I feel like there's some flows that I could do that maybe there are like three or four views that would benefit from having a router kind of thing. I don't feel like it's that big of a step to go to that.
0: Yeah, for sure. There's something about using Vue that just, like, doesn't make me feel guilty about doing things that way, whereas, like you said, like, especially with Ember, you feel like you're doing totally wrong if you do it that way, and with Angular, you still kind of feel like you're doing it wrong, because it feels like you're carrying around this whole giant, big tool chest full of stuff, and you're only using, like, one tool out of it, but you still have to kind of build up the whole thing everywhere. I don't know. That's how it felt like, for me at least. With Vue, it just seems like, you know, the library itself, the main library basically just does the one thing you know it lets you bind some stuff to somewhere in the view and uh do like handle the two-way binding stuff and it's just kind of a view thing view in the sense of like you know your view layer and if you need to pull in the router you know you pull in the router if you need to do like http stuff you pull in the http component you don't need to feel like you're carrying around the whole thing or a bunch of stuff that you're not actually using and feeling like you're somehow doing it wrong for not using enough of it you know
1: Yeah, exactly. On the, during my daytime work, I'm working on a big donation system and and it's using Vue as well. And we're doing the, each page is its own controller kind of structure. And I mean, that's exactly the kind of, I like working with the server. Honestly, APRs are cool too. And we have a bunch of that on donor give, which is the product I'm working on. But I feel like anything I can do on the server is going to be a lot faster. It feels like the only other thing that I wish I could find in the JavaScript framework is something that allowed me to to spit the page out and then have sort of the the instance of view or whatever it is kind of populate its data attributes based on what's in the DOM already. I don't know if that makes sense. So like I could spin yeah. through my my posts in in the view on the Laravel end and then have a view instance that's spun up with like the initial state just binds of that to page.
0: what's there and reads it reads the data from the view instead of like initially creating it. I know what you're saying like, I think you can do it with react. Like you can do like server rendered react components and then react can like bind to the existing component once the page loads up because you're right. That would be totally nice. Especially since you're already serving the page from the server anyways. Right. So Since the server has to go do all that stuff, it seems kind of like a waste to have it do all this work to render basically a page that contains no data only to do like another HTTP request to get the data and then populate some template and have to work around like, you know, flashing the unstyled template or having to put in like some loading spinner and and stuff like that. It'd be nice if you could just have it all spit up like right away and work. I mean, maybe that's something that could be looked into doing like server rendered view stuff down the road, but that would be a really cool feature for sure.
1: Yeah, I've I've seen, I've seen somebody do that with Knockout. They had a, I don't know if it's a plugin or whatever, but it's, it basically does that and and you have to, in your template on the server side, you write some sort of binding that says, Hey, whatever's in this, in the HTML content for this element is what I want to bind the data to right now. But I haven't seen a good way to do it on Vue, and so I've just done what you've said is make a loader indicator, and then go fetch it from the API, and then kind of render the page that way.
0: Yeah, that's and that's worked fine for me. The I would say, honestly, the biggest um, annoyance that I've run into there that I, I haven't come up with a solution to, mostly because I probably just haven't spent enough time thinking about it, but the only thing that kind of bugs me is when you go to make like an AJAX request to get your data for your component, but the ajax request is like almost too fast and like the loading thing just like looks awkward because it doesn't like sit there long enough for like you to even register what it is it just looks like some weird flash of something else you know what i mean it's almost like yeah if i have to fetch something from the server i want it to take like a minimum of half a second just so that people can see that it's actually doing it but that seems like i totally understand <laughs> it's so stupid to want to like inject like performance Latency? decrease yeah, yeah. right yeah <laughs> but uh, that's how I feel sometimes. And I don't know what like the best way to uh, work around that is. One thing actually, you know, that I have seen people do more and more lately that um, maybe is a better solution to that is like, I think I see this on like Facebook on like their mobile app and stuff like that. Instead of showing like a loading spinner, they just show kind of like, the same structure that you would expect to be there but like with like placeholder colored blocks where like the text would be or something that just kind of fill in once the stuff is loaded yeah. so it's not really like a jerky mm-hmm. transition but maybe like working towards UIs that feel more like that maybe that's like an approach that can help solve that problem i don't know what do what do you think like it sounds like you've experienced the same uh, kind of annoyance sometimes
1: yeah i definitely understand what you're saying cuz it can look just as jerky when you're your loading indicator uh, it shows for maybe 50 milliseconds or whatever and then just dis- disappears and all the data is there because you're like, what was that? Did I miss something? It's just as bad as not having, you know, cloaked your your DOM element, you know, in view. So I have on some instances and in, in these products I had like a set timeout that once the data is already loaded, I still wait for a couple milliseconds. That way it feels like that it actually loaded. I also read an article one time that was like, when you're in like a checkout form and you're adding or you're trying to check out and you're, you're doing that final step where it's going to process the transaction. You always notice like on Travelocity or something like that it takes a really, really long time, but Ness, nece- you know, it doesn't necessarily actually take that long on the server. It's just like, you know, you're buying something in the cart and it's just, you hit purchase and it's, boop. it could be that fast. But sometimes that f- gives you a little bit of anxiety as a user, this article was saying. And so that some some development teams have actually added latency into that to make it feel like it's
0: like working like really actually hard, doing right. something. Yeah. yeah,
1: like it's turning in the background, and there's you know mice on or hamsters on the wheel <laughs> spinning this whole thing up in the background, and it's real secure and all that. And so I kind of want it to feel right. And so if that means I have to use a set timeout after I've loaded the data already, I'm fine yeah. with that.
0: Yeah, I I did start experimenting with like using a set timeout and kind of wrapping that in a promise with whatever the AJAX call was and doing like a promise.all sort of thing. So it kind of is like, it's going to wait at least 300 milliseconds. But if the AJAX request takes longer than that, then it'll use that time. You know what I mean? So if it takes 350 milliseconds to do the HTTP request, it's not going to wait 650 milliseconds. It'll just be like, what's the shortest amount of time above 300 milliseconds? But uh, I don't know, it'd be neat to kind of bundle that up maybe into some sort of reusable thing where you don't have to worry about... Uh, specifying all that I mean your code starts to get noisy when you start doing stupid stuff like that in different places especially if it has to be like a different time for different animations or I don't know man I feel like really nice front end interactions are, are must be one of the hardest things to do as a developer it's something I don't have a lot of experience in that I'd like to get better at this year for sure
1: yeah I've always kind of favored the server just because maybe that the JavaScript side of it is my Achilles heel you know I've always kind of just oh, I'll show a list of errors at the top of the screen and if there's five errors on the form, that's fine with me. Instead of going through the the pain of like figuring out how to outline the text fields or adding little helper text underneath the field, you know, kind of that sort of thing. Like I've always just favored, I guess that's what laziness is. But, you know, when you're doing, (laughs) you know, the server side, you're doing the front end, you're doing the design, you're also trying to be a founder, you know, it's kind of, Oh it's yeah, It's hard to wear you, all you those hats. Be,
0: you can't go like full, the whole uh, thing on every single thing, right? You kind of have to figure out, well, what's the uh, 80% value it can get in the 20% effort sort of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, there's some of these, it's it's really hard when you look at large companies like, like Stripe or, or whatever, and they've got all these beautiful animations and you're like, man, I want to have that or I won't even be considered sure. in the market or my products won't seem as legit. But really, I mean, that's, you got to think about it. The company has taken millions of dollars of venture funding. They have a a development team of anywhere to 30, a hundred. You just can't compete against that on that level. So you have to, you know, kind of differentiate on different things.
0: And even then, like, do they get their return on investment on the time put into that stuff? I bet they don't. I bet it's just because of the size that they can just absorb those costs, right? So if you really want to look at like, this thing took someone two weeks to do, you know, do we make more enough money to pay for that based on the value added by that specific thing that they spend those two weeks on. In most of the cases it's probably no. It's just that the size that they're at, they're able to absorb that. And you know, someone decided that it's it's that's important to them for the image of the company, but does it really contribute? Or or maybe like it's one of those situations where that two weeks of work to do that one animation on the homepage, like, that only matters if you spent that same amount of time doing animations everywhere else. You know what I mean? There's like some minimum amount of investment before the whole thing feels like it has that same level of polish and attention to detail that it actually pays off. I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely challenging on small teams to, to be able to justify spending the time to compete at that level of polish sometimes.
1: Yeah. And some of it, I'm just not very interested in, like, did you read that article about medium and their crafting link underlines. Yeah, I
0: did. <laughs> where
1: they spent weeks crafting the underline. It's just like that kind of stuff. You know, they have tons of money to to do that sort of thing. And if they have people that are really interested and passionate about that, that's great. I'm not personally that interested in working on, you know, proprietary underlining of letters. Sure.
0: <laughs> that was actually, rather, I, <laughs> I did find that to be a really interesting article just from like, um, I don't know, it's... I don't know what I thought was interesting about it. I think it's cool to like see someone care that much about something that small and like the level of effort and craftsmanship put into something like that, I think is admirable, but you're right. Like, I don't know how I would never, ever waste my time doing something like that. You know what I mean? And I don't know if that, what that says about me versus the people who do spend their time on it, but uh, yeah, I don't know. That was a pretty interesting article.
1: I'm more likely to be like, hey, is there like a jQuery plugin where they've just extracted this or, you know, some sort of, you know, thing I can pull in to do this? I'll just let them take care of it. Take care of the, let the large companies take care of the stuff. And then kind of just whenever they release it on their open source, just use that. Kind of let them fund my research and development.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The way that they ended up solving it, if I don't, if I remember correctly too, is doing something like they used like a background image gradient on like inline block level elements for their, links so the the actual underline was just like one stop point in the gradient so it looks like an underline but really it's not and it was because they were originally they wanted to use a border but you can't use a bottom border for things that like are gonna have to word wrap because the bottom border won't work properly then they tried to do some crazy stuff with like text shadows and all stuff i don't know it's pretty nuts really to read like what had to go into being able to customized, underlines on text the way that they wanted to do it. And I still don't think that they ended up being fully satisfied with it, but it was like the best that they could do.
1: Yeah, uh, that's just not me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, So the other thing that would be cool to talk about is uh, you kind of mentioned it briefly, but you have that CSS framework that you kind of put together. Um, I was poking around trying to find the documentation for it, but it doesn't look like there's any public docs for it yet. So you want to kind of explain what it is. Uh, what it's called and kind of what the philosophy is behind it.
1: Yeah, it's if you wanted to see the development docs, they're at dev.buildwithbeard.com. Okay. And currently working on version 2.0, which is like the big update, and kind of that one will have a little bit more marketing behind it. But yeah, it's, I it's, I call it an extremely pragmatic and utility-focused CSS framework, and it's built for me to do it really helps me in designing in the browser and it's got a hyper-focus on the utility class strategy, which you have, which you can find in frameworks like Bass CSS, if I'm saying that right. I don't know if it's Bass or Bass yep. CSS. Yeah, have you I'm seen not that? Sure.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure it's and pronounced then, either, though.
1: Or Tachyons. Or it, it's also kind of in the same family as something like Atomic CSS, if you've seen that from Yahoo. Okay. And so it really focuses on on the helper class kind of functionality. So like if you're building a button um, and you need, you know, everybody needs different states of the button. You need buttons that have dark backgrounds with white light text or the inverse of that. You need hovers for that. You also need the ability to have them at display block or display in line, that kind of thing. And then really, I found that when building this kind of stuff, there's the temptation to Do really specific classes that are like button, and then button hyphen hyphen dark. If you're doing like a BEM kind of syntax, and then I found that kind of broke down a little bit, especially when I'm using a lot of the same styles across different types of components. And so I kind of just I took some inspiration from this style guide that I saw that uh, Salesforce they they did the style guide, and there I saw inside of this there was like Cl- their class attributes just had tons of classes in and I was like whoa this is really weird to me this doesn't seem like a good idea and but I upon ex- exploring it and using it inside uh for my own projects I found that wow this is actually a really good approach
0: yeah so I've been embracing the utility stuff a lot more lately uh for a long time I felt uncomfortable with it kind of like you kind of alluded to it just felt like you know, people have always said to kind of keep your style stuff separate from your markup and and whatever. But I think you're right that it becomes a lot more practical to be able to work just in one place instead of two places. You know what I mean? Like, to me, it's, it almost feels like my goal now with CSS is to create a style sheet that I have to edit as little as possible and as infrequently as possible. Is that kind of the mentality there too?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it's it's for. It's, I want to do it as little CSS as possible because I want to get on to building whatever I can. You know, I feel like with an elegant enough system, you can, uh, I don't know, sort of normalize all of the common things and all the websites that you're, you're building. So for that, for me, I use, uh, in beard, a scale of 10 different levels of gray, you know, going from white to black. And I just use those. I have a a scale that I use and I know that I can go BG G zero zero five and get that amount, or I can go bg g twenty and get that that level on the scale. And so uh, I find a lot of times that in, when I'm using Beard on a project, that I don't even have to like go edit the CSS because I have a helper class that's ready to go that I can kind of get what I want right there. And that allows me to to be more focused on des- the design and the, the user experience of the product or the development of the back end rather than kind of futzing around with you know a SASS kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I, I watched a video with uh, Ryan Singer, the uh, product designer, product manager. I don't know what he calls himself these days, but at Basecamp, he had this like a uh, video for peep code play by play videos. It's like an over the shoulder, like two hour video of walking through him working uh, on some problem and implementing it in HTML and stuff. And he does all the design in the browser and he does it all with inline styles originally, right? So just creating like a style attribute on the elements oh, really? and, and doing it all there. And I don't think that's the right way to go like when you want to put something in a production because uh, you end up I mean a lot of time these utility classes end up combining a couple different attributes right even if they just serve like one purpose which might be like center this block element that's usually you know apply a margin left and a margin right or or whatever right but um, I thought it was interesting because you can take that sort of approach to designing you know in your markup with these utility classes and kind of just be done which I think works great a lot of the time. I think probably the biggest challenge that I run into when I'm styling stuff is when I have just like some one-off thing that is only ever going to exist once that needs a bunch of styling related to it. Right. Uh, good examples of this is usually stuff that's on like marketing pages um, where you're not, you don't really have like a system in place. You're not building like some reusable component. It might just be like one part of one page has to look this way. And Uh, What I would do historically in the past is I would create like a class for it and I would put all the styles for it in the class, even though that class only ever got used once on the whole site. Lately, I'm switching that around a little bit and kind of doing the opposite. I feel like that is like the equivalent of like premature abstraction, but in like CSS, you know, where you're like creating something that is really you should only do if it's meant to be reused in a bunch of places and it's going to save you a bunch of work. But I've been finding it works way better for me to take like a really focused set of utility classes and just build it in the markup with the utilities. So does it need like padding left on this one element? Then I'll add the padding left with a utility class rather than trying to come up with some name for that thing and give it a class and do whatever. And then if, you know, I run into a situation where all of a sudden I need that exact same sort of thing somewhere else and I don't want to duplicate all the styles because I don't want to necessarily deal with maintaining, you know, those combination of utility classes in two places. Well, then maybe it makes sense to create a class. But I'm finding like preferring utilities and only like extracting classes when extracting the classes makes it easier to maintain than the utilities has been like a way better approach.
1: Yeah, for sure. So like going back to that button example, if I needed that button to be for some reason positioned, absolutely. I would write that in a, in a, a separate class, but then everything else that's more is the common elements, like the background, the text color, the text size, the the font weight, uh, the letter spacing, all of that. I can abstract that and use that in, in so many places as their own utility classes. And that's kind of where Beard has, you know, LS1 class and that's letter spacing on the first level of the scale or LS2. And they're even responsive so that on Different levels, I want letter spacing to be to change, you know, because when you're resizing the viewport and it's smaller, you know, you, the text will look better with maybe an LS3 or you know, letter spacing three. And then as you grow up, it might look better with it spaced out a little bit more, and so they're even responsive in that way. And so, yeah, I found that anything that uh, most of the things that I design at least can be, uh, kind of normalized into, into beard. And so if I find anything that I'm doing a lot that I'm like, oh man, I really need, I'm writing a helper for this, for this one project, but this really could seem useful for, to be in the framework. That's when I'll, I'll drop it. I'll drop it in beard and use it then. And that's where I've gotten stuff like the font sizing or the, the tux colors, uh, that kind of classes.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you have like, um, like a set of variables or something that someone's meant to kind of like configure at the start of the project to get like, if they want to, set, you know, whatever fonts they're using or colors they're using and stuff. Does it kind of like rebuild itself or you have like a set of mixins or something that you're using or how's that all sort of set up?
1: Yeah. There's a, a, the settings that you can, you can set before you import beard. And then, so like there's the beard reset. If you don't want to use the reset inside beard, you can just set it to false. Or if you don't want the responsive features, you can set it to false, which might be helpful if you're just doing like If you've got Beard pulled in for maybe like a phone gap type app, you don't really want all of the extra helpers like the LG because those are actually quite sizable in the output CSS. So you can disable that kind of thing. Also, you know, you can configure the grid, the gutters, you know, the column sizes and that sort of thing, the site width. Um, And yeah, you can set like sans serif to be whatever you want. And it's just kind of, there's a whole bunch of things you can configure in it. Branding colors. And so Beard will loop through all of your branding colors and create those as you know the .bg1 will stand for the first branding color .bg2 will stand for the second branding color and by default i think it has there's five but you can set any amount and it will generate all of those you know so it'll it'll go through and set create background classes text color classes border color classes and uh, there's also settings for border widths that you can you can set I, I know that i need at least from 1 to 10 pixels on border widths and Depending on that variable, it'll generate the right amount of classes for that.
0: Cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. I'm looking forward to uh, being able to play with it. What's uh, what's kind of the latest status on it?
1: Um, I'm working on the documentation because, you know, something that's kind of this, I don't know, feels kind of far out for a lot of front-end developers to use uh, needs a really good documentation to get started quickly. So that's what I'm kind of working on right now. It, the API is pretty much stable, and I've been using, like on Silver, I used Beard. And I'm just using the V2 uh, develop branch, and so it's stable. And I've got my friends that uh, my friends at MusicBed they they really liked Beard. Actually, that's where Beard grew out of. Was we had this internal library called Kombucha that kind of had the same sort of philosophy. And I sort of once I uh, moved on from there, I kind of took the idea of Kombucha and brought it out and made Beard. And they've they've since backported that to beard uh to to use beard instead of kombucha and so uh but yeah the documentation is what I'm working on right now and there's a a few few other things I'm kind of tweaking before I uh, release it to the world
0: cool man how are you planning on like distributing it like this is something that I don't really have like a great sense of what the best way to do is anymore with front end stuff. Cause it seems like, you know, some people use Bower, some people use NPM. It seems like NPM is starting to win the war, I think even for front end stuff. But uh, what's the plan for beard?
1: The plan will be to have it on Bower, which is what it's on right now. And NPM, I think you're right. I think NPM is winning the war. Uh, my friend Andrew is always kind of crapping on Bower. I'm not really sure. I think it's a JavaScript person thing, but you know, I f- I've found that, hey, man, I'm, the only reason I need Bower is for Beard, and so I'm like, that's probably a pain point that shows me I need to have it on NPM, but yeah, that's, that's going to be the two ways. You can also download it just as a, a CSS file if you just want to drop it in and do something real quick. We recommend, though, that you pull it in and then you copy the configuration or the, the imports. And uh, copy those into your, your main file and kind of put your styles in the middle of these declarations. There's a special spot for it. After the objects and before the helpers kind of basically is where it goes. Kind of helps you uh, keep the specificity level in the right way. Having the helpers at the end. It follows this, uh, have you seen uh, It's CSS? I don't know if it's, it's CSS. It's from Harry Roberts from CSS Wizardry. He had a talk that was talking about his approach to that, and it was it was that, basically. You start with your your reset. Um, he has English terms for it because he's from England, I think. But uh, his helpers are called Trumps, and they basically trump everything else before. And that's kind of our helpers. They're all set with importance so that you can rely on them being there no matter what you have previously in your CSS. So if you have, like, a card and you want to make sure that that text is, is black, TCB will do that it will override because it has important set on it that kind of scares people too
0: yeah i think it makes sense for the the utility stuff though because a lot of time you'll end up with like you might have some class that you apply to something that has like some padding on or or whatever and you want to override that padding in this specific case and you know if you're going out of your way to like apply a class that only does one thing it'd be pretty silly for it not to do that thing because of some specificity issue
1: yeah for sure if you're building with Beard at the start you're and you're embracing the kind of the, the workflow that we suggest, you're waiting to the last moment to extract a class that's specific to this one instance of an element. And so you wouldn't run into issues with padding because you'd be using pH 1, which is padding horizontal 1, you know, and or PV 2, which stands for padding vertical 2, you know, using the second level in scale. But yeah, if you're going to drop Beard in on a project and wants to to use it to kind of like I use it. We have a front end developer on our, on our product donor, donor give. And sometimes I need a piece of the user interface done. And I, you know, he might be out for a couple of days or something. And so I'll, I'll build it out in beard and say, Hey, if you don't like it, you know, you can go build it out yourself. Or if there's some aspect of his interface already that I need to change, he writes really specific classes. You know, he's comes from kind of the old guard where you have, like he might set, a class on the body and then have a UL LI and then descendant yeah, selectors like some, like,
0: deep descended thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's really hard to get above. And so I'll just drop a, one of our helper classes from beard on there to kind of fix it.
0: Cool, man. Well, um, what's the best way for people to kind of f- keep up with, uh, news with beard and push silver and stuff like that.
1: Uh, I'll always be tweeting it out from my Twitter account at David Hempill, but beard, you can go to buildwithbeard.com and that'll have the updates and push silver has its own account on Twitter at push silver.
0: Cool, man. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome having you on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Cool. Um, so if anyone wants to uh, keep in touch, the best way to follow you is on Twitter and uh, check out your projects on Twitter, which I'll link up in the show notes. Uh, if anybody is interested in looking at the show notes for this episode, they'll be at www.dot.fullstackradio.dot.com/slash/thirty-three. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful and helps us reach more people. And thanks, as always, to Laracasts for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. They got tons and tons of awesome content on there. If you want to learn more about how to build apps like Push Silver using uh, Laravel and Vue.js, that's the place to go to check it out. So thanks again to them, as always. And thanks to everyone listening. See you next time.